Hi, everyone. I hope you're all well. It's quite nice going into autumn, isn't it? I'm quite enjoying it. It's a beautiful day today, and um, but you can feel that autumn chill coming in, um, and the leaves are falling, which is very pretty. Anyway, I'm very excited today because I'm meeting a, a wonderful actress called Claire Dunn, who is starring in and has written the most wonderful film called Herself. And I'm really looking forward to meeting her. Well, I'm very excited today because I'm talking to Claire Dunn, the actress. Hello, and writer, I should say. Brilliant writer. Thanks. Hello. How are you? Thanks for having me on, Turkey. Oh, I'm so, I, I have to tell everyone, I saw the film herself, it's called, right? That yeah. Claire has written and stars in. I saw it like a week and a half ago and it absolutely blew me away. So congratulations, number one, to you because it's, it's oh, such a you. brilliant film. I was So then I quickly got in touch with you to see if you'd come and have tea with me. Which <laughs> <laughs> and I was absolutely delighted to have well, it with one of the icons of oh. the world. <laughs> well, thank you very much. But so on to tea, what do you drink? Well, what I have is a good old-fashioned uh Barry's tea in Ireland um, but I get the decaf version because <laughs> I can't really handle too much caffeine oh, okay. so it tastes exactly the same I love it and I have it with a drop of uh, soy milk and I don't really put sugar in my tea but if I'm really I don't know tired or drowsy or I just need it in an afternoon I might I might sneak a spoon of sugar in you're allowed I, well I I'm, actually I'm on lemon and ginger at the moment but I, I usually have my build well I don't have builders tea actually I have a mixture of English breakfast and Earl Grey mix Ooh, which lovely. is well I, I don't like Earl Grey on its own because it's a bit too perfumey but if you ya. mix it with English breakfast it gives it a bit of a kick Ooh, <laughs> and I put honey in that nice. milk that's right it's nice lovely so you get your bit of cat well you could do it with decaffeinated as well. yeah yeah absolutely no I love like having a coffee as well but I think it's just the amalgamation of all the teas and coffees I just go if I just have decaf tea that means I can have a cup of coffee and not be worried that I'll I can't be up all drink night. coffee it makes my heart palpitate <laughs> uh, oh, you're, lucky, my... you're not a caf- coffee addict oh my I've god never so lucky coffee. Never. wow yeah. the few so times good. I've tried it does it makes my heart flutter which I suppose it's meant (laughs) in a good way in a good way so where where are you you're sitting in I am sitting in Dublin I'm in the south the southern half of Dublin and I'm just by the coast so it's really lovely it's quite like a bright day today actually for once in Ireland it's like sunny and dry and uh, so we have a kind of September Indian summer going on, but I love it here. I've just moved here a few months ago and it's gorgeous. I'm so happy. Well, I'm very jealous. I love Dublin is actually one of my favourites. It's such a gorgeous city. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people like I lived in London for years as well. So I kind of have a thing where I feel at home in both cities because I spent a lot of my 20s in London after drama school. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just... I feel like there's something similar and then obviously there's something vastly different, which is the size. Size, but yeah. I But I do feel like there's a certain kind of like crack that people have together. Sorry, crack being like, you know, connection and fun and a bit of banter. And I feel like that's something that we all have in common between London and Dublin. Yeah. And also, yeah. I have to say, the Irish are so friendly and lovely. Okay, <laughs> when I came over to do a chat show with... Um, is it Gay Byrne it used to be? The lovely yeah, Gay Byrne. Wow, you met the famous he, Gay Byrne. He was legendary, wasn't he? And he was so I think I did it a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And we came over, but this is, must be fifteen years ago. And then Lee, my husband, we, we he came over with me and we thought we'll we'll take a week off and we rented a car. I did the show and then we rented a car and drove across to the West Coast and then we did all the drive around. Uh, the Did you go down to K and everything? Yeah, oh. And, oh, it was magical. It's and amazing spent one of the there. best nights I've ever had in my life in Matt Malloy's pub in Westport, is it? Yeah. Westport yeah, on the coast. Yeah. 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 And they were playing Irish music, which I'm obsessed with. I'm a huge I know, Irish I think they play traditional music like every night in that <sighs> pub in Westport because I've only ever been to Westport once and I was there you know, um, actually, weirdly, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, because I was on a big long holiday, 
And I couldn't believe that they had a bunch of people in the pub yeah. on a Monday night ready to go with the traditional live music because they do it for themselves, not I just for the, the, these, the guys we yeah. saw that night, well, it was mainly guys. It was one woman, I think. They, they, they you know, they were like the local builder. Um, and, <laughs> and Brendan, who I loved, he was the fisherman and he had oh, blonde curly it. hair and he played... He played either the spoons or that. What's the traditional drum? Oh, the baron. Oh, the baron with the big yeah. It, it was amazing, mm, and I've never yeah. drunk so much Guinness in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Guinness tastes great in Ireland. It does. They it's say it's great. all about how far it travels or something. So when you come to Dublin to Iggy, you have to go right to the factory. That's what you have to do. Have oh, a okay. pint in the factory. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're on. That's the way to do it. That's it. That's what I'll do. But anyway, so that's a magical memory for me. It was brilliant. And we met Matt Malloy. He just arrived back from the States touring. Oh, wow. Matt Malloy, yeah. for people who don't know, I'm sure everybody does. He's one of the chieftains. Mm. <laughs> one of the greatest Irish bands in my eyes. But, mm. um, but it, you do. You live in a magical country. Thank you. It is a bit of a kind of land of saints and scholars. And I probably never knew that as much as um, I did when I was in my 20s when I'd be coming back from London. And I keep discovering people from America and Canada, London and Europe who come to Ireland to study and do their like, oh, I'm having my stint in my 20s. Um, and they say they, they come to Ireland to become the best writer they can be, which I think is hilarious because we're all the Irish. We're all heading off to New York and London <laughs> and LA and we're like, oh, Paris, maybe on a mad one. <laughs> and, um, and we can't believe when people come to us, we're like, what? And they're like Oscar Wilde, Sam Beckett, you name it, you know. So it's so funny to have it reflected back to you, but it only happens by traveling and finding out these things for yourself. Did you grow up in Dublin? I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I came from quite a big family, so I have like five sisters Mm -hmm. and my mum and dad were quite young parents. So we kind of, we grew up a bit on a council estate and then we moved to a slightly better estate and we had a very like, kind of street life childhood like a safe one but just like we were out on the roads playing all the time Um, and we had a great we just had such great times when we were younger like knocking on people's door everybody was very connected in the communities that I was in and I think that's that's had an effect on me um, later in life because I end up writing about that sometimes and not realizing oh it's because I grew up in such a tight-knit kind of neighborhood so it's um, like the yeah. dream childhood, really, because in the end, yeah. that's what's important. It's not really about the size of your house or how much money you've got, because when you're a kid, you don't know. You know, I mean, no, I, I yeah. grew up in a working class. I mean, we weren't poor, but we weren't rich. My dad, my mm-hmm. dad had a good job. He was a carpenter. He built, he built um, sets for films. Okay. So he had a good job. But my mum was a mum. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we all, I always had everything I wanted. I was the youngest of three girls. But... You don't think when you're six, seven, eight, you don't. And we played on the street. Mind you, I'm a huge different era than you. But and it was really safe then. Yeah. I yeah, I do wanted. feel for like kids that live in, in areas where maybe there's not a cul-de-sac or enough, yeah. you know, or that it's not a quiet enough street to play on. Because like, I just, I think that's really vital. Like, I under, I know that people can have play dates and do all this kind of thing, but I do kind of. I'm very lucky actually where I live right now. There's a big, huge uh, green in the middle of the the kind of houses around by me and you see kids out there all the time. Oh, that's good. Because I do think lots of parents now are too nervous to let their kids go out and play on the streets because of the cars, because of weird people. Whereas in the new, no, but in, in, when I grew up, again, my, my, my growing up era was in the 1950s. So it was mm-hmm. very few cars around. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, it was so, we all played on the street. It was brilliant. And what area did you grow up in? I grew up in northwest London. Okay. Uh, Which is funny because years ago when I was in my 20s, I got to play Eliza Doolittle in uh, in, uh, Pygmalion, which is one one of the great female roles, actually. Mm. And I think actually I was the first actress to play it the right way around because, you know, obviously... I, I've yeah. got a very working class accent. Um, <laughs> I always thought that Eliza Doolittle was a Cockney. But actually, if you read the bit in the front of the play, she came from Lisman Grove, which is northwest London, which oh, is where I grew up in northwest London. That's amazing. London. So I learned something there. 
And then I had to have a voice coach to help me with the posh bits. Posh bits. <laughs> I remember doing all the posh bits in, um, in drama school. It was quite funny when I went to drama school, we had to learn, you know, the RP, like you're right. saying there, the posh one. And then we had to learn the Cockney London and, uh, Essex and all these kind of different so accents. But then what was really funny because I went to I went to drama school in Wales and they had to teach me the general Irish accent <laughs> while I went berserk in the class. I was like, there is no general Irish accent. Oh my God, I absolutely lost it. And the irony was that it was a Northern Irish teacher who was teaching me. And she knows more than anyone that there is no such thing as one general Irish accent. But I suppose there is a kind of, there's a sort of thing of like a general, um, like uh, Leinster or like there's a kind of country accent, but then there's like a Cork country accent and there's a Gaul country accent and then there's the bit in between north and south and then there's north Donegal but then there's north Belfast yeah. and and then once you get into it you realize there's like 55 different accents it's the same as England but it was just so funny that I was in in that school getting so, taught why did you go to drama school in Wales not Ireland well it was the one I was offered uh, oh, okay. <laughs> no I was I was offered actually a place in Dublin but um that that school that drama school was closing down so it was kind of on its way out and so oh, okay. I followed a gut instinct to go I'm gonna go where I think it's like thriving and I, I think I need to get away and and just have an adventure do you know what I mean I was very young and I was very impressionable and I needed to have a sense of independence so I decided to go for the adventure and of course halfway through I was worried I wasn't going to be able to afford to finish the bloody thing but thankfully no 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 it's not it's certainly not a poor me story because I got uh, very very cheap fees I was in the window just before all the fees really started to jump up for students and I was in all the protests against the fees going up so I was very lucky um, in retrospect but I just mean in terms of like I just needed money for rent and living and stuff yeah. and the, the school was amazing it was Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama yeah. and um, they were phenomenal because they got um, they got these grants for me and they got this extra bit of money so that I could finish the degree and and they helped, they supported me so much. And I worked in the student bar. Like they made sure I had, all, you know, plenty of shifts in the student bar and things Aww. like that. But happy, happy time, yeah. Happy oh time. my God, such a happy time. They're, they're probably half the reason I discovered writing because they made us at the end of each year put on a play. Um, like, like, so we're actors, but we had to basically join up with all the other courses in the mm-hmm. school. So there'd be stage management, theatre design. And uh, what was the other guys? I think that was it. it was it. Everybody had like different roles. There was lighting designers as well. And basically our job was to sort of create something to put on for 20 minutes maybe up to 30 minutes in, in, in second year. And you'd get to kind of design the show and uh, and light it, or you could make you could make film if you want. You could rent a camera at the time because our phones weren't probably that good for, for camera. And, um, and basically we had to create a piece at the end of each year. It was called your end of year assessment. But I think that's kind of where I ended up going, God, like it's actually just kind of like storytelling. Like you just kind of, that's what writing is. You just kind of, end up making people talk or whatever it is. Now, this was just me performing. But then uh, when I finished drama school and I hadn't worked for a few months, I ended up putting on a piece that I had written in drama school and I just expanded it and made it an hour long. So um, I put that on in this little theatre in Dublin then when I was about uh, 21 and That's it was... very brave to do. Well, it, was I think brave, yeah, it was brave, but it was like also that thing of like fringy, you know, so it was kind of like you had to kind of just go, right, I might fall completely on my face and it was messy and it was mad. I made my dad be the producer and I made my friend Chris be the stage manager and my sister was doing the box office. It was that kind of thing, you know, and <laughs> made her own leaflets and went out on the street and were leafleting like like to tourists and all sorts of people in Temple Bar. And but I think that's where I probably realized like, oh, that was actually just great fun, even though I made no money or whatever. It was kind of like just the idea of making something and then and then actually doing it and going on the journey of it and completing it. It kind of happened then. And then I and then I acted for years in theatre. And then it was only when I started writing the film you're talking about and that I kind of was like, okay. 
now I'm going to do something even bigger and like make it happen. But it, it, it I don't think I would have had the confidence to even begin screenplay writing if I hadn't done that in drama school. Do you know what it's I mean? Quite, it's quite a different. For I mean, I, I'm not particularly right. I mean, I've written bits when I did my autobiography. I I worked with a writer and I wrote certain short bits of stories that. I felt I had to write because they were so personal to me. But yeah. the format of writing a whole book and a, a whole it's very different to doing a screenplay, I would I would think, isn't it? Because it's, yeah. it's a whole I other mean, it's a whole other thing. I, th- I think screenplays are interesting because really you're almost writing visually at first. Yeah. You're kind of like trying to get an image across yeah. of what's going on in the scene and you're trying to do it actually quite economically. So it's probably the opposite to a novel in that yeah. sense. And yet you slightly still want to have a bit of embellishment so that the, say, the the guy, the DOP, uh, the director of photography and your actors are getting a good enough impression of what's actually going on. Yeah. So at the same time as it being about economy, it's also about like, I need to get this across. Like, So, um, and they often say in film that you, there's less talking and more doing yeah but actually I do think there are plenty of films now with like a big verbatim kind of style and people talking plenty like talking the way we do in real life so um but it is very different to novels or plays it's a bit of a tough discipline to start out on actually because you realize as you're going along oh yeah this is not just about writing this is about acting directing set Mm -hmm. building lighting sound composing music (laughs) Uh, editing and then you realise you're trying to put all of the art forms together and that's why mm-hmm. I think film and cinema is such, still this worthwhile thing that we love going to because it it just like brings together so many different types of artists. When it, when it works and I have to say and I, I, I've said to, this to you privately and to Philida Lloyd your lovely director that I got a, a copy of herself sent to me. Herself yeah. is the film that you, you've written. And that's right. Are. Brilliant in the leading role, absolutely brilliant. And um, I just, it blew me sideways. I absolutely loved it. It really made me cry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it also, I found, well, I don't want to give, I don't want to give the story away because I don't want to spoil it, but yeah. it is so moving and so tight. It made me really angry as well about, because it's, well, you tell the listeners as much as you feel you should tell the basic yeah. storyline because I don't want to blow it. But it made <laughs> me angry okay. about the system that this yeah. Sandra, the lead that you play. That's exactly like it it started out as like I really want to write I really wanted to write this woman who builds a house for herself and in the process kind of a new community of friends come around her. But um I also knew she would have had to been getting out of a really desperate situation. So I said it in a kind of domestic violence world. And if the listeners have listened to Phyllis's um, interview already, they know it kind of came from my friend who also was just trying to find a house for herself and her three kids. But but Phyllida and I at the time were working in theatre together with an all-female Shakespeare company and we were doing workshops with prisoners. And we were just so aware of domestic violence being this sort of hidden, like, cause and cancer in the world and in society that we don't realize has a knock-on effect for so many things like it really affects the children in the home of it and it affects how what they feel like and and how they grow emotionally and then their choices in life but it also affects and um, the women themselves well women and men who suffer domestic violence they have this kind of ptsd it takes years to get over um, but also when people are in these desperate situations, they may commit crimes. They may commit crimes to either fight back or when they leave, they have nowhere to live. There is no refuge. So they will do anything to keep their kids and themselves alive. And, you know, so there's all these sort of, I feel like crimes of desperation happen out of this problem of domestic violence. And it's like, we need to look at it with a wider lens. Anyway, with this film, I just really wanted to show a woman that's like not so much a victim as a soldier. She's a soldier oh, on a war a, front. She's, a, it, she's yeah. amazing. You really are rooting for her all the way, aren't you? Well, Good. I It's like, oh, I, I, again, I, I'm terrified to give, I don't want to give the story away because it's, 
it has got a twist. It has got a twist. It's yeah. almost got a thriller element, I'd say. And I wouldn't, yeah. I would, I would encourage your listeners to know that it's not just as simple as, oh, and she builds a house and everything's fine. It's kind of about the journey towards yeah. that and what that really means. And also, I have to say, the performances are, you're, you're wonderful. The little girls are, oh, aren't they? They're brilliant. hard. I mean, they all, <laughs> Yeah. They also really made me laugh, but yeah. um, they're so gorgeous. Everyone's wonderful in it. Everyone. Yeah. It's it's a, it's a Harriet Water who plays the lady you clean for. That's right. Yeah. Um, she's it's well, funny because amazing. Well, well, we know Harriet really well because my yeah. husband is an actor, Lee Lawson. Okay. About oh gosh, probably twenty years ago now, eighteen years. He did a play with Harriet. They did Old Times, the Harold Pinter play, oh, with Harriet lovely. Water and uh, Julie Christie, the wonderful Julie. Wow. And um, they opened it in, in Wales and then they brought it into London and then they went to Moscow with it, actually, which oh, was that very one, interesting. Yes, yeah. she talked about that. Mm. Wow. So we, we know, and Lee knows Harriet really well because, you know, they did the play together. Yeah. But we had lots of very hysterical nights at dinner she's very funny lady yeah no Harriet's very funny and nobody realizes that and she can also play the piano and do crazy weird things and writes raps and poems and stuff (laughs) and does them as party pieces (laughs) oh she can rap she can do a lot of things that we don't realize like she's an absolute legend but I think it's funny that I ended up working with her because she was my first kind of acting beacon of light it was the first book I ever read about an actor was her book called Other People's Shoes and it had a huge effect on me because I was I think I was about 15 and I I was absolutely amazed because I suddenly was reading about acting not just in the context of like oh and then I did this gig and I did that gig and then I got that film and then this happened she was kind of talking about how uh, she really wanted to change the world with stories and she'd like do all these great things with them um, is it 1954 company and things like that like she mm-hmm. did all this great stuff over the years that was very socially conscious and she played like men like in like she was doing all sorts of crazy stuff when she was younger and I remember thinking I want to be like this woman oh my god <laughs> I'd, I'd love to know her someday and cut to you know I get my first job with Phila Deloitte the director of Mamma Mia and then I'm in a room and I'm Harriet Walter's wife and it's crazy like it's my mind is just going, what? You know, and then the first night that me and Harriet, I remember we did an evening rehearsal with Philida together and it was our first time ever being on our own and everyone else was gone home and we had to do a big workshop on the Portia Brutus scene and Julius Caesar. So it's me and Harriet Walter and we're given all these props and I've got a pregnancy bump and it's all very alternative. And um, <laughs> all I remember from it is that we had a big massive row and a lot of custard creams got thrown at each other. And I remember in the middle of it, I was just chucking custard creams at Dame Harriet Walter thinking, <laughs> I've made it. I actually made it. And that was that it. I knew it. That was it. My life was changed that forever. So Cut to a few years later and I'm staying in her house and everything like, and we're great pals. I love her to yeah. bits. She's no, amazing. She's a very, very nice lady. Apart from being a wonderful actress, she's a very nice lady. Mm. So you'd work with Philida in quite a lot of theatrical pieces, right? Yeah. You did the all-female Shakespeare. The all-female Shakespeare stuff. What was that like? Was it amazing? Oh, God, it was amazing. Do you know what the best thing about it was? Um, Because... it was probably the comfort of the costumes. <laughs> so we were playing, <laughs> we're playing female prisoners, putting on these plays, right? So, um, so just just before I even get into the deep stuff, is like we got to just wear tracksuits and hoodies and sports bras and runners, and um, trainers. No, sorry. no corsets, no, no corsets, <laughs> and it was all about like very like little no makeup really uh tying your hair back and getting on with it and it meant your focus was so on the work you know you weren't concerned about what you looked like and you also got to play these roles that were now I was playing two roles in the first one so I got to play like Portia as a pregnant woman with with Harriet as my husband and then I had to jump change costume and become Octavia Caesar who actually takes over at the end of the play um, and, and, and ruins Brutus and all his followers. So uh, 
it was amazing because basically we realized we were, we were, we were in the minds of these female prisoners and we had to create that character first and then whatever they were going through in their own life or their journey, that prisoner, it meant like that had to inform the character in the play. So I think uh, I was a bit of a gun runner, but I'd had stuff to do, but I'd gotten caught only because of my uh, boyfriend who uh, kind of left me high and dry. And and I wasn't getting enough information about what was going on. So I was the one who ended up in prison or something. This was my whole backstory. And uh, for the first play, so is that it really suited Portia, who's like trying to get information out of Beardus. She wants to know what's going on, but he won't give it to her. And then she's the one that ends up, you know, dead. And she actually <laughs> she actually kills herself like a big act of like, you know, I don't know, like just like I'll, I'll show you all kind of thing. And then Octavius Caesar, I, I played him as a bit of an IRA head who was a bit of a gun runner because I, in my head as the prisoner, I was basing them a bit on my ex-boyfriend I think or something like that or people that I'd known so it was all this kind of stuff and it was amazing it was such deep work and it was really um we all got to know each other I think we all shed a lot of skin and told a lot of stories about ourselves in the process and in the workshop because what we were trying to do was so new and I'm not sure how ready London was for it I think the reviews were quite divided and certainly one uh, reviewer thought we were like um you know he, he kind of likened us to dogs on their hind legs, kind of this silly, like anti-women kind of thing. And it was really silly because it was like we were quite obviously doing a conceptual thing. And it was just like there was a bit of dividedness, you know, in, in the reviews. But then I always find that the things that divide opinion are always the things that people remember you for. Like if you've done, you know, I've done like 10 shows, I got four and five stars, you know, whatever over the years in London and this that and the other and it's the ones that get like a one star and a five star or a two star and, oh, a five yeah. star and things like that and people will stop you in the street and go, oh my god you were in that mad show you know like, true, <laughs> so I feel actually. like we kind of did something really daring and it obviously worked then because then we had to do it again and again and we ended up doing a trilogy of plays but it was incredible because we watched Harriet Walter of all like it was it was mostly like just getting to see her handle these great male Shakespearean roles in the most incredible way with great sensitivity but great macho-ness as well and all that did you uh, take did you take these productions to New York because you've worked in New York haven't you yes we went to New York and in New York how did they how did what did they how did they take to it oh loved it loved yeah. it loved it like they were like it was funny is it's it's we went to New York with the Julius Caesar thing the first time and we were really nervous and actually New York welcomed it open arms like they were just like this is it this is a whole new concept and they completely got it they went the with best it. audience especially if they yeah. like something yeah, if they yeah. love something and they I think they just were very open to it and they and they also just got it it was much like clearer to them what it was what it was saying and what it was doing and so then once New York accepted it I think then you know the future shows kind of got a bit more uh, interesting and they were just looking at the work and they weren't just criticizing it for being girls and um, doing it but I think I felt really proud of it I feel like it was life-changing because I met Phila Deloid and Phila Deloid is a force of nature and she, she is she changed all of our lives and I think all of us had new standards about what stories we want to tell so after was, working was, with her. Were, were you working with her when you gave her the draft about herself? I was, yeah. I was, I was writing away on a, on a couple of drafts over a couple of years um, on my own and then I just asked her, like, would she ever read it just to give me some advice? And uh, and so she did and she gave me some advice and she was like, God, this is very good now. You should really keep going. But then it was like th- there was a kind of phase where I had gotten Sharon Horgan. Did, did you know her or did you just think I love what she does? I I knew her because I had an email address. And then I <laughs> I emailed her the script going, I don't know if here's a company might be interested in this. And at first it was like, Oh, I'll get one of the girls in the company to read it. Sorry, I'm really busy because I'm making this series called Divorce in New York. Yeah. 
And then, um, and then, but then there was another email and I was like, what? There's a second email. And then I kept scrolling down and it said, forget that email I said above. I, I clicked, I started reading and, and then I, I, I had to read to the end. Can we talk tomorrow on the phone? And I was That's like, fabulous. wow. So it was kind <laughs> of, it was like that. And it was a bit of a step-by-step process then. So then by December, 2016, um, it was funny. Phyllida read a new draft and I told her I had Sharon on board. And she was just going to get, she, we had lunch and she was just giving me advice about the different companies that she'd worked with. And she said at first, you know, I, I can't direct this because I've got loads on and I really think maybe you just need to get an Irish director. And I was like, oh yeah, no, I wasn't even asking. Like I wasn't, I really wasn't because I knew how busy she was and she's Philip Lloyd, you know? And, um, and then I think it was that night or the next day I was at the cinema with my friend Neve. And I just got this text off Philida and she said, and it just said one sentence and it said, I'm directing owned because it was called owned at the time. I'm directing owned. How wonderful. And I was like, okay. (laughs) 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 And then, uh, and then. And did you always, what did you always want to play the lead of Sandra or did you think because of a film where they'd have to get a kind of Hollywood name or something? I was literally schmoozing Neve Algar, this fantastic actress who's in um, Deceit and she's in um, uh, a thing with Stephen Graham. You might might have seen her in The Virtues or Deceit or Uh Raised by Wolves. Anyway, she's in a lot of stuff at the minute. And she's so she's a really big, uh, you know, famous Irish screen actress. And weirdly, I was trying to convince her to to play Sandra. Um, but Philida was so great because basically we were in this meeting then. So Sharon and Philida met and hit it off immediately. Then uh, Sharon was like, well, look, we need an Irish company because we need an Irish company on board so that we have an on the ground producer in Ireland and we can get this thing going. And I was like, great. Um, well, the dream team would be Element Films who made The Favourite and Room and things like that. And she was like, okay. And she had it on their desk. Had like Ed Guiney had read it within three days. And we were sitting at their Christmas party in London at this table. And I still remember, I think, I think Sharon was on the left and Philip was on the right of me. And we were sitting at this table and Ed Guiney was across the table. And so was Rory Gilmartin, the producer. And... I just remember Philida going, I really want to do this, but I want to do it with Claire playing Sandra. And I was like, okay. <laughs> In my head, I was like, that's different. And then, uh, and they went, okay, it'll be a bit more difficult to finance, but okay. And then Sharon was like scrambling at my legs with her hand, like a little, like, <laughs> she was just so excited. Sure, and she was grabbing my leg under the table going, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> Um, and so we all just kept her cool. And then and then we went downstairs, just screamed outside for a while. And it was great. <laughs> like, yeah, you know. because for people out there who don't know, it's really, really hard to get films off the ground. I know, I'm having tried a few times and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And raising money is virtually impossible. Yeah, it's it's a miracle. Like films are miracles. Well, that when they ever get made. They yeah. really, I mean, and you can even, I mean, we've got, a couple of very high-profile actor friends in LA and even with their big names and they have projects, sometimes it can take five, six, seven, eight years to get something going. It's really... So I really take my hat off to you because... And I thank God they, they... they decided to let you play Sandra because I can't imagine anyone else playing. Oh, playing thank her. you so much. It's so everyone's got to watch this film. It's absolutely fabulous. You should be really proud of it. It's oh, gorgeous. And it's beautifully you. shot. I love the, the um, cinematography. It's gorgeous. Yeah, Tom did a great looks, job. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's it sort of feels of, like it's sneaking around watching people like a documentary yeah, in some bits. That's uh, right. It's very realistic. And then it also kind of shows the magnificence of like just this little house, but it sort of makes it look magnificent in in Sandra's eyes and in her kids' eyes. And the light is all very natural. So it's it's very, um, yeah, no, it's really good. I I have to say, people are saying to me now that watching the film after what we've all been through with the pandemic is really interesting because it is kind of about like Sandra's sort of building a new world yeah. for herself and and there's a there's an element of questioning like what could that be in 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 the in the movie but also just the thing of 
people getting together and day by day rebuilding something. It's so nourishing for yourself and for others. And you don't realize that like you're doing all these little bits every day, you know, in the building of the house. And it's like you think it's endless. You think it's never going to happen. And then suddenly it's up, you know, like and I feel like we could all do with that sense of like hope and just seeing something manifest at the minute because we've all just had so long of just like a bit more of a quieter time and now we're suddenly back open into the world. But I wonder, can we look at it all with new eyes? And I feel like there's a lot of that in the movie. I hope we've learned a few lessons Mm. (laughs) because it's been so horrible. Well, I mean, I feel like one of the lucky ones because, you know, although I miss my kids and my grandchildren, Mm-hmm. through lockdowns I had my husband and you know we we live in a nice house with a nice garden it was just the Sandras of the world is the piece exactly. that your heart went out to mm-hmm. it really highlighted that like you were kind of thinking if all we have is our homes like if you're in a home like what she was in it's incredibly difficult and I think there was a huge spike in people ringing the helplines that I actually sometimes look at as maybe a bit positive because I think a lot of people might have been in denial of their situation. And then the the lockdown moments obviously forced them to see like, oh, I can't actually live here. Like I can't actually live in this situation. Now, I know that's like negative on some level, but it's positive if they make the reach out, if they reach out and they pick up the phone or they reach out to somebody and say, I'm not safe. I think that's great. But, but I think what your film highlights, I think, is that how, that's why I said that I got so angry about the, the social housing system that this beautiful young woman with her two gorgeous children can't yeah. afford to get a home for them. And is, you know, and, and, and God bless her, decides to build her own. But this should not be happening. Oh, no, it in, shouldn't. In our, in our Country. In this world today, in like this I know. day and age, it's just anywhere, but certainly not in Great Britain. Like when I when I was researching this whole thing, Twiggy, right? It was like not only was I meeting people that have all those solutions and the answers, but like I was meeting people who are caught in this place of like they're actually working for the government or working on these boards, and it's just red tape, and they're so like. They're being restricted. There's actually people, I think, inside the system in areas that are really trying to change it. But there's just this, there's too much going against them. And I just wish people could see with great clarity how little it costs to build a very econ- like economically friendly house for somebody. And it could change lives. But not only that, like if people learned how to self-build, they could also get qualifications in it. it. Your listeners should definitely Google the Walter Segal self-building things that happened okay. in the, I think it was the 60s in London. And there is actually a documentary about it. And he was this Holocaust survivor and he fled from World War Two and he brought his family to London. And they eventually ended up in this house in, uh, I think it was Lewisham. I think it was the South. And he was in this house and, oh no, sorry, maybe his was Highgate. Maybe it was up, way up beyond north. But wherever he was, there's one at the north and one at the south. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, he his name was Walter Segal. And they ended up in this dilapidated old house that was absolutely fallen to ruins, right? And he was like an architect, right? So he's an architect. And he said, right, we're going to have to fix up this house. So what I'll do is... I build a temporary house out the back garden while we fix up the the main house. So he came up with this design and it's all timber framing, right? Like you see in the film. It's all timber framing, a very simplistic thing, but actually it's built on these stilts with very simple foundations. And he was doing this as like, I think this is just a temporary thing for my family and then we can fix the house. Well, he built it and it ended up far better than the, than the <laughs> old ruins that was behind him. And he was like, this is this is really good. And also in these designs, you could actually move uh, the walls very easily wow. on the inside of the house. So as the children got older or they wanted separate bedrooms, it was very easy to easy move to things around and separate oh, rooms okay. and do all this kind of thing. 
So he realised he had an amazing design and he went to the county council and he said, I think because there was all these people with no jobs and absolutely ruined, uh, just had nothing going on for themselves. Basically, they created a a self-building co-op scheme with the county council. And there's there's actually a documentary about it. I don't can't remember what it's called. I I dug it up. What's his name, Walter? Walter Segal, so S-E-G-A-L. And if people looked up this story, they would be absolutely amazed because you can go to the street. Because I went down to the street in Lewisham. And I met, there's an, uh, an MP uh, lives on one of the streets with the self-built houses and she's incredible. God, I wish I could have people's names, but um, I can't remember now. Um, I should look them up and email them on to you. But basically I went and visited these houses. And so it's amazing. They kind of look like they were designed in Sweden or Japan. Like they're kind of incredible looking because they're just these big straight lines and it's all timber, but they're strong and they're like, they're they're just, they're just able for anything. And they, they last years. So they're there, like, so it was the 60s. So they're there yeah. 60, 50, 60 years yeah, already. Years. And they will last forever. And, um, and so this guy actually made a version of Utopia happen where people built their own houses. And not only that, but they got qualifications in their skills along oh, the way. Yeah. And then they I've lived never in these heard houses. This story. It's amazing. Oh my God. Like, and I just think like it's interesting that the story hasn't been heard. Yeah. And like this needs to be done. They did it in um in Grand Designs. There's an episode about them doing this in Brighton. So there was a big, huge scheme of self-building houses oh, there okay. as well. So just once people tap into it, it's kind of, it's very enlightening and it's very addictive. You really get into it, you know, <laughs> but it's very hopeful as did, well. Did you shoot this film through lockdown or was it filmed before? No, we actually got to shoot it in 2019. It's just had such oh, okay. a later release because it was delayed yeah, because, by the lockdown. So yeah, yeah we were okay. lucky. That I, we, yeah. You got, you got it made before. Yeah. Because I yeah. know a few films were delayed and That's I know right. a few people who actually worked on films through well, the second lockdown. But. Yeah, no, I actually got to work on, I only had a blink and you'd miss me role in The Last Jewel. <laughs> uh, and then I had a big long role in a in a TV series called Kin and it's on an or, it's on RT1, it's on an, on AMC in America. Um, but it, I, I think it's yet to come to the UK, so I'm not sure what the plan is for the UK release. But we filmed all the way through lockdown. Um, and how was that? It was kind of crazy. Like, I just felt for the makeup artist, Twiggy, you know, <laughs> because we had to put the mask on. The mask was on until the very last moment, you know, um, uh-huh. for the take. And sure, God loved them. Like, you'd be just doing checks, though, like, really, like, way too many checks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because you'd have to check for each setup then. And did and, you um, have to do tests every day? Yeah, we had to test uh, twice a week. Oh, if okay. you had any scenes where you had physical contact, you had, I think, another one. And then you had um, the, sorry, the really fast one. Is it antigen? The antigen test uh, yeah, yeah, on yeah. the day as well. So yeah. it was like lots of cotton buds down the back of your neck, sort of. <laughs> yeah. The whole way through. One, we were very lucky. sensation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But at least you, you, you got it done. Absolutely. I mean, we, we just hibernated. But, you know, because of our, I'm in the older age group. So mm-hmm. at the beginning, I you know, I got, quite scared because none of us knew quite what was gonna happen well nobody knew did they but i i i I feel better now now i've had my jabs and and it does seem to be yeah i mean it's not gone away and i don't think it'll ever go away we we hopefully will learn to manage it and live with it I really just hope that all the young kids just become immune and then we all just sort of get used to being very careful and, and consider it with our, you know, with our hygiene and the mask wearing, etc. But I feel like it's a new awareness. It's a new, it's a new form of caring for other people. Well, it is also last year there was very little flu because everyone was Everybody either was, yeah. inside wearing masks. But, you know, I first went to Japan. I went to Tokyo in 1968. Mm-hmm. Wow. I went out to Tokyo. And we thought it was hysterical because when you went on their amazing underground and their bullet trains, everyone wore masks. Yeah. And we thought, oh, they're mad. Why are they wearing masks? But actually... It's it was brilliant. It was to look after each other. You yeah, see? So we because used to, they're an incredibly caring society. Yeah. And they're very precise about things. 
They did another thing when we were there. It was like an experiment that uh, an American company did. They put a really expensive Pentax camera on a stand in the middle of a square, like putting it in Trafalgar Square, and left it there. <laughs> and it sat there for a week, and nobody touched it, and nobody stole it. It was Absolutely oh my brilliant. god! Isn't that amazing. Yeah, I, think I mean, we they are an amazing society. Totally. I, I remember hearing something on the radio years ago about the mask wearing thing before we yeah. we were all doing this, and and they were saying there's a misconception from the Western point of view that we think they're doing that to protect themselves. They're not. They're doing it to protect everybody else. It's that they have a cold and they don't want to give it to you. Absolutely. And it's like it's our our mentality is still yeah. much more capitalist and individualist whereas theirs is more just like community you know they still have like they want to make money and do things like that but I just mean they think of the wider picture first yes, exactly. and then go back to themselves and it's it's just exactly. a different way of thinking and it's it not. is and I, th- I think it's going to make all most of us rethink certain things for the good I hope yeah. and also I think the planet yes. recovered a little bit with everyone stopping flying around and in their cars mind you it'll probably go back to that but I think it will I think it's now about just improving how we do it and actually if if there's one thing I'd encourage uh, because when I in the process of making my film I feel like I had this huge gift uh, in the journey of research which was discovering so many amazing positive things that are going on on the planet to help with the the climate change but I think uh, if there's one thing I'd, I'd tell your listeners to watch is look for this documentary called 2040 and um, there's there's actually a website they have uh, I think it's just whatsyour2040.com and basically it's a documentary the rule of the documentary is they can only use solutions that already exist and basically it is a visualisation of the world in 2040 if we just started switching over now you know the energy resources all the things that we actually have the ability to do if we just started actually doing it now and if the government got behind, governments got behind things and the huge uh all the you know all the guys that own the money on the planet that have yeah, all the money yeah. um and the energy guys you know shell and bp and all this kind of thing and and the whole documentary was made actually by an actor who just wanted to make this uh documentary because he became a huge activist for environmentalism um and it's da- damon gamow i think his name is and um, ironically, he worked in Ireland on a series for years. But it, it's an amazing documentary because it would oh, honestly wow. instill so much hope in people and and make you see that actually there are solutions already. Well, what the other amazing thing, when you see, well, there's that wonderful Scandinavian girl, um, Greta. I can't remember oh, her yeah. surname. Oh, yeah, yeah, But yeah. also there's so many, when you see kids being interviewed, they're all very... I think they're doing it in schools. They're all very aware of the planet and about growing things and about oh, yeah. helping the sea. And, and, and you know, they're six. I mean, my little granddaughter, who's six, will come mm-hmm. home and, you know, tell you, you mustn't do that and you mustn't buy that because it's in a plastic bottle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but it's brilliant. Because, it's brilliant. Yeah, you know, well, it's I mean, going to be their, their world. Yeah. yeah. It is their world. Yeah. And, and, but because I don't remember ever learning anything like that at school. Yeah back in the 50s because it wasn't in anyone's mind. No, sure, it wasn't. It wasn't known. When I was in school, um, it would have been in the 90s, I remember finding out about pollution and crying. That's yeah. all I remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Finding about, out about dolphins and, and whales being affected yeah. by oil spills and being absolutely distraught. <laughs> That's all I remember. But the kids now are being shown how things can change. Yeah. Yeah. And all the things they need to like promote. But I think that's our our saving grace. Mm. You know, I'm I'm optimistic, let's say, rather than pessimistic, mainly because of them. Yeah. Well, you you have to be, or else it's going to be, you know, just a downhill. Yeah. We don't roll. even want to go yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. It's like, come on, we can do this. Do you have? I always ask everyone. Do you have a person? that was like your mentor or that somebody who changed your life or, you know, at school or when you were beginning mm. your work life? Did you always want to act? I mean, no, was there like a I feel like that actually, my, 
I don't know. I, sorry, that's really hard to say. In a way, it's like Harriet Walter was was the distant idol that definitely changed my life. But I feel like um, I feel like my my mom uh, and my granny they just they just got me when I didn't get me. So like my mom was like. <laughs> what do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know. I love telling stories, making people laugh. <laughs> she was like, I'm going to send you to a drama group. And then my gr- granny used to bring me to musicals, operas and theatre and just like okay. shove the culture down my throat. And I was like, OK, <laughs> that's what I'm going to do. So I feel like it. they both kind of informed Brilliant. who I became, you know. Oh, well, it's been an absolute joy to meet you. Um, Again, congratulations on herself. Please, everyone watch this film. It's absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Take so lots of tissues with you, though. <laughs> yeah, we should be we should be supported by Kleenex. That's what we should. <laughs> you really should. should. They should have sponsored <laughs> you. <laughs> but thank you so much for having me, Twiggy. I'm so honoured. I'm so honoured to be asked on by you. It's been so lovely to chat to you. Okay. Well, let's hope we meet in Dublin or London one day. For a pint. <laughs> yeah, for a pint. For a Guinness in Dublin. Absolutely. You're on. <laughs> Bye. Oh, what a lovely lady. Oh, she's so lovely and so talented. Please, as I said when I interviewed Villa Deloy, please watch this film. It's absolutely wonderful. It's called Herself, starring Claire Dunn and written by Claire Dunn. She's a very clever young lady and very sweet. And I can't wait to lift a Guinness with her. Anyway, stay well. See you soon. Bye. If this is your first time listening to Tea with Twiggy, please do remember to tell your friends. You can also subscribe for free on your podcast app and listen to all my previous guests. If you want to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Twiggy or you can find me on Instagram at Twiggy Lawson. My thanks go to all the people that have helped this podcast happen. Many thanks to James Carroll and all the team at North Bank Talent Management. Thanks to all the team at Stripped Media, including Ben Williams, who edits the show, my producer, Kobe Omanaka, and executive producers Tom Wally and Dave Corkery. The music you can hear now is my version of Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. If you'd like to hear the whole song, you can find it and all the other songs I've recorded on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. I look forward to you joining me for my next episode. So see you then. Bye. just heard a stripped media production.